How beautiful. You take your Bibles, <clears throat> excuse me, and turn to uh, Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to be reading uh, the first seven verses out of chapter 9. Camper put some water for me somewhere. While you're finding Isaiah 9, uh, it's a pleasure to be with you this morning. Lisa and I always uh, enjoy when we uh, are able to come here and uh, join you guys and worship with you guys and, and open the Word of God. So we're going to be reading Isaiah chapter 9, and this is going to be part one of a two-part series of Advent. Let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's Word, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle torment, <clears throat> and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This in the reading of God's holy and inspired word. I have a question for you this morning. I want to ask you... Um, how many of you attended the Grand Illumination, the lighting of Williamsburg? We have something similar to that in Virginia Beach over in our area. A few years ago, WLWT in Cincinnati, it's a television station there, did a report uh, on the uh, Festival of Lights at the Cincinnati Zoo. Every year they have this Grand Illumination, they light up the zoo. But it appeared uh, that this year there was uh, something going on. There were some tree-dwelling creatures uh, that weren't uh, part of the official population census of the zoo that were stealing the Christmas lights. And apparently, this is true, I'm not making this up, I know it sounds made up. Apparently, there, the squirrels were, uh, were coming down and they were, they were stealing the light bulbs because they thought they looked like nuts. And they were hiding uh, the lights, you know, and uh, they, were, they were burying them and hiding them in various places. You know, the, the officials assured the TV cameras that they were not biting into the lights, but they were hiding them somewhere. Now, there was a bit of a controversy going on because, um, you know, some of the zoo visitors and patrons blamed the, the zoo officials for not feeding the squirrels. You know, if you feed the squirrels, they wouldn't steal the lights and we could enjoy the Christmas show. And, the, you know, the, the, the zoo officials were pointing their fingers at the visitors and the patron said, well, it's your fault. You keep feeding the squirrels, and they think they own the place. 
And so uh, we have repeatedly and we have clearly, you know, into the cameras, we have asked our patrons and the visitors, do not feed the squirrels. You feed the bears, feed the lions, don't feed the squirrels. And we've posted warnings all over the place, and yet they're disregarded. By the way, that year uh, they did this interview, uh, the, uh, they had replaced 75,000 lights out of the 2.5 million lights of the Festival of Lights, uh, some, some greedy squirrels. In all seriousness, uh, the prophet Isaiah has cataloged clearly and repeatedly how God has called his rebellious people to turn from their fascination with foreign gods and their fascination with uh, military alliances with pagan nations. And he, he, the prophet over and over repeatedly and clearly calls God's people to return to the Lord. And over and over throughout the book of Isaiah, we see that the leaders of God's people repeatedly and stubbornly disregard the prophet's message. And the light of God's glory that dwelt in the midst of God's people is growing dimmer and dimmer and dimmer until almost their darkness was complete. And because we are doing a two-part series, I want to give you a little bit of background of the book of Isaiah and where we are in this chapter. The kingdom of God is divided. It's divided uh, between the, uh, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom, Israel. The southern kingdom, Judah. And um, they were like uh, two rebellious brothers rebelling against their father. And uh, exile was just around the corner for Israel. Israel was a little further in their rebellion. And so the message from the prophet Isaiah was very clear from, for the people of Israel the Assyrians were knocking at the door with their fearsome armies. And so the, the, um, the, the message to Israel was, exile is imminent, but there's hope. If you turn to the Lord, if you humble yourself, there's hope for future restoration. There's hope that one day you will again bask in the warmth and the glory of God's light. The um, message for Judah, their brother, was, was uh, very similar Judah was to sit up and take notice of uh, the discipline coming to Big Brother. And uh, not only were the people of Judah to sit up and take notice, but especially their king. Their king was riddled with fear and anxiety and indecision and unbelief. It seemed that the more he grasped for control, uh, the less control he seemed to have. You ever feel like that? You know... Um, before we wag our finger at that king and his fearfulness and his unbelief and his anxiety, we need to consider that the Bible tells us that one of the reasons that we worry is because we want to be in control. Uh, we want to rule our little kingdoms. Now, part of that desire to rule was part of our DNA. We're made in the image of God. We're made to be vice regents and stewards of God's creation uh, under his authority and independence of God alone. That's how he's made us. But worry is like Adam and Eve in the garden, uh, overstepping their bounds. We overstep our bounds in our attempt to control the things that we cannot control. And the more that we try to control, the less we feel in control. Martin Luther, the great 16th century reformer, had a friend by the name of, of Philip, and uh, Philip was just being dominated by anxiety and fear and and Luther, in an attempt to kind of get underneath the fear and to kind of expose the fear, he, he didn't say, you know, Philip, 
you need to get a handle on things, man. You're in the ministry. Or he said, Philip, you just need to just get a hold of yourself, man. You know what he said to Philip? He said, let Philip cease to rule the world. You know, if you think about it, the incarnation shatters our illusion of control, doesn't it? Because the incarnation, the enfleshment of God, God coming into time and space is about God's initiative. It's about God's rule. It's about God's plan. It's about God's intervention. It's about God's invasion in time and space and history. And the incarnation is about God's grace. God's sovereign grace. You know, it's only the grace of Christianity do you really find true rest and security by giving up your illusion of control. And so the prophet Isaiah is telling this very fearful king along with the fearful people that what you need, king, and what you need, people, is not more control. But you need rescue. And you need rescue from your enemies. But you need also, you need rescue from yourself. We need a person. We need a rescuer. More than anything else that we need for Christmas, or more than anything else we need in this life, is we need a rescuer. Who is this person that God promised to send? Well, uh, we will know him by certain names. God gives us signs. He gives us clues. And the first clue that he gives us that we would know this rescuer and make much of him is that he's a wonderful counselor. That's what uh, he calls them in uh, verse uh, 6, wonderful counselor. We need someone, the prophet says, that is wiser than we are. Now this is a um, single title that's translated in two words. And the word wonderful we see in the Bible over and over when it refers to God, it refers to God's acts, or it refers to God's acts as being incomprehensible, miraculous, and marvelous. Extraordinary acts. And counselor refers uh, to the concept of one who determines a plan and carries it out. So Isaiah is saying that Judah's only hope was a wonderful counselor whose plans and pursuits and designs and purposes would be extraordinary. They would be marvelous. They would be full of wisdom. Of course, we know the, the ultimate fulfillment of the wonderful counselor, the only one that fits this job description, is Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says uh, uh, in the second chapter of Colossians that uh, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of what? Wisdom and knowledge. Wisdom is a treasure and it's hidden in Christ. The Apostle Paul in the book of Romans in chapter uh, 11, he asks a rhetorical question. He says, who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Who's ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To God be the glory. Amen. Have you ever thought about that? Who has been God's counselor? No one. You know, it's interesting to me that, um, that Christmas is so much more palatable than Easter in our culture, isn't it? Our little church plant core group went caroling last Sunday night, and we went into some neighborhoods where we hope to be reaching into these neighborhoods. You know, it's amazing. The, the whole concept of caroling is still amazing. You knock on the door of complete strangers, they open the door to complete strangers, and then in this awkward three minutes, you know, you're singing these Christmas carols. And we even had guys that were watching Tim Tebow making this miraculous, you know, comeback for, for the Broncos, and they would even come out and listen to us, and, and then they would wave and go back in. 
But you couldn't do that at Easter. I mean, try on Friday, Good Friday going and singing, you know, Good Friday hymns uh, to your neighbors. They think that that was ridiculous because Easter comes across as confrontational. It's got this thing called the, the crucifixion. We talk about this thing uh, about our blood, our, our sin needing atoning by the blood of Christ. But if you think about it, Christmas is confrontational. That's the truth about Christmas. You know, in Christmas, God is saying, you know, you guys have made a mess of this world. You've made a mess of this thing. Christmas is about an intervention. You know what an intervention is. You know, people that love you show up and, and they're going to intervene in your life. Christmas is an intervention. For centuries, God had sent His word. He'd sent His warnings. He'd sent His spokesman. And then finally, God is saying through the prophet Isaiah, I'm coming down. I'm entering into the mess. We know that the mess started when Adam and Eve, our, our parents, stiff-armed God in the Garden of Eden and said, basically said, God, step aside. I think we can run the world a little bit better than you're doing. And it gets to this point in Isaiah where Isaiah South says, now that the world is in darkness, it's in despair, there's a gloom that hovers over God's world. If we had time to kind of catalog what was going on in the nation of Israel, uh, we would see things like this, rampant materialism, um, corruption at every level, idolatry, sensuality, promiscuousness, social disintegration. And we're standing here in the 21st century and we're thinking, you know, things have gotten a whole lot better, right? Eh. If we just look at the problems just within the church, I'm not talking about our wider culture. You know, one of the, the sad statistics that you look at as a pastor is that um, you know, about two-thirds of evangelical men, men that confess, uh, profess faith in Christ between the ages of 18 and 35, profess that they have some type of uh, problem with pornography, at least on a monthly basis. You know, almost every week I talk to some uh, Christians who are debilitated by fear or they're being crushed by debt. Uh, a while back, I read a New York Times article entitled, you know, you just went to the title, Evangelicals Fear the Loss of Their Teenagers. I mean, just the first two words of that title makes you wince. Evangelicals fear in the New York Times, going out in the mainstream of our culture. You know, the article went on to say that, um, you know, the writer interacted with experienced youth pastors in the National Association of Evangelicals regarding the decline, uh, the number of teenagers, uh, the decline of, of teenagers embracing Christianity, embracing the church. And they said that, the, I don't know that there's any validity uh, to this statistic. I hope there's not. But they said that uh, by the time that this generation of teens reaches adulthood, then less than 10% of those adults will embrace Christianity and the church. And we're wringing our hands and we don't know what to do. You know, some of the, the factors um, attributed to this uh, phenomenon uh, sounds like the book of Isaiah. Uh, some of the factors attributed to this decline are the pervasive culture of cynicism about religion, casual approach to sex and the way it's portrayed in the media, the divorce rate among the teenager's parents and dysfunctional family issues in the home. 
We need more than a counselor that fits on our insurance plan. We need an intervention. We need a counselor whose purposes and designs and plans are incredible and extraordinary and full of wisdom. You know, Lisa and I watch a sitcom from time to time, and um, on this particular sitcom, there's a political group that approaches one of the main characters, and this main character is kind of quirky in her personality, but she has a real passion about improving her community. She really loves her community, and so they approach her, and they say, we want to uh, market you for political office. We think you have what it takes. And of course, she's so quirky that, you know, it's a disaster. It doesn't, doesn't work out. But what if, what if this happens, okay? Uh, just um, indulge me just for just a moment. What if you approach a marketing firm? He said that, um, you know, we want you to convince the world that there's a particular man in history that will be mankind's rescuer. And he'll come into the world, and he, he alone has the solutions to all of our brokenness of humanity. And they say, well, okay, uh, let's, let's give, me, give, give me some details. Tell me about the man and his plan. And you say, well, uh, he was born in an animal shelter among the urine and dung of the animals. And, um, you know, as he was a little older, uh, he went into hiding with his parents. And then, um, you know, he, he kind of lives in a nondescript town far away from the centers of, of power and influence. And then, uh, you know, at the end of his life here on earth, he dies a shameful death as a common criminal, naked hanging on a Roman cross. I think that marketing firm would probably look at us and say, you've got to be kidding me. This guy sounds like a fool. And his plan sounds like a disaster. But isn't that the story of the gospel? The gospel is a story of a father who loves his only begotten son, and instead of purging the world of fools who made a mess of his world, he sends his only begotten son into this world. The son takes on the appearance of a fool. He lives among the fools. He loves the fools. He dies for the fools. And, he's, and he came not just that we might have life, but that we might be rescued from our foolishness and have the very wisdom of God. And it gets better than this, that this father adopts us into his family. Joe Novison is a PCA pastor admired by many. He pastored in a town where I grew up in, in South Carolina, or close to the town I grew up in. And I'll never forget, um, during my um, uh, seminary years, he came and spoke. He was the keynote speaker at our Spiritual Life Conference. And he was my favorite uh, conference speaker the three years I was at RTS. Joe Novison, when he was in seminary himself, he worked in a steel factory and he had a very bad industrial accident where he mangled his hand and he was in excruciating pain and his wife tenderly uh, cared for him, loved him, um, and, and even bathed him, and just, which is very tender toward him. When he was 18 years old, he had a date. He couldn't wait to go on this date. He anticipated this date all week long. He was so excited about it, that's the only thing he could think about. And then his mom called right before the date and said, you, Joe, you've got to come home. The sewage pipes in our basement has busted. And uh, so he had to cancel the date. And he went home and he just sloshed through raw sewage from the bathroom that was running all over the basement to shut off the valves and clean the mess up. But you know what happened? The girl decided he wanted to be with Joe, and so she came over to help him. 
And he said, that night, I knew that this girl was the girl that I wanted to marry, so I did, eventually. You know, if you think about it, that's what God did. He had every right to blow this world up, this, this, this world inhabited by fools who made a mess of his world. But God, out of love, came down to slog through the mess. And folks, that's the God that I want to be married to and adopted into his family. We need someone who's wiser than us. We need someone whose counsel is extraordinary, that is exquisite, that is beyond our comprehension in many ways. We need a wonderful counsel. But we also need a mighty God. We need somebody who can do for us what we can't do for ourselves. You know, there's kind of a progression to these names that Isaiah is giving us to help us know and understand this rescuer, this, this one that we are to make much of. There's a progression to it. You know, just, we, don't, we need somebody that's not just a counselor who's got great and marvelous designs and plans. But we, know, we need somebody that's powerful enough to pull it off, to accomplish his plans. The word mighty is the same word that we read in verse 4 for warrior. It could also be translated champion. Sometimes this champion, God, won victories without Israel's help, without them lifting a finger. And sometimes this champion uses Israel and God's people as instruments of his might and his strength and his power. That was the case in verse 4 when Isaiah's kind of reminiscing about the days of Midian. And he's talking about the time where when Israelites lived in such fear because the Midianites were so powerful and so oppressive that the Israelites literally fled to the uh, mountains and hid in clefts and cages, uh, caves, not cages. And God raised up a judge by the name of Gideon uh, as his instrument of deliverance. And so for Judah, the message is clear from, uh, from the voice of Isaiah. The message for Israel right now is this. Turn to the Lord and this champion, this warrior, he'll fight for you. And the king was wringing his hands because he's thinking, he's weighing his options and he's thinking, you know, you know, I could join the northern kingdom and Syria, their partner, because there's strength in numbers. Maybe I'll do that. Well, you know what we can do? I could rely on my relational winsomeness and we can partner with the enemies themselves. It's inevitable they're coming down. So we're going we're gonna to partner with them. They're going to see how great we are. And Isaiah is saying, don't do it. Trust in the champion. Trust in a warrior. Why are we so prone to ignore God's might? Is the question of the hour. I believe in part it's something to do with this. When God doesn't seem to put his might and his power to use for our plans and our agenda, we lose heart. We were to go back a few generations from Gideon. There was a man by the name of Joshua. He was a warrior. He was kind of the commander of chief of, of God's army on earth, if you will. And God raised up Joshua to lead the armies of Israel against the enemies. In Joshua chapter 5, we see that um, you know, the time of, of conquest is near, the time for a battle against Jericho, this big fortified city, this ominous city out in the middle of the wilderness, is upon him. And um, and Joshua is confronted out of nowhere by a mighty warrior, a champion 
a mighty warrior, and Scripture says that this warrior's sword was drawn. I don't know about you, but um, <laughs> I would be a little speechless. And so Joshua just asked a very natural question, a question that you would probably ask and I would probably ask. He said, uh, are you on our side or, or on their side? And this warrior said, uh, neither. As commander of the army of the Lord, I have come. That's all he said. And Joshua hit the deck. As soon as he said this, Josh fell, Joshua fell down in reverence on the ground, prostrate on the ground in the dirt. In other words, the warrior refused to be categorized in the simple terms of Joshua's question. The real question was not a category question posed by Joshua. The real question was a cathartic question posed by the warrior. It was an implied question that really, in essence, said, Joshua, whose side are you on? It seemed that on the eve of this huge battle, that God wanted Joshua to examine his heart, to examine his motives, to scrutinize his inner agenda, to look at his secret doubts and his hidden fears that tend to seize our hearts in the heat of the moment, in the heat of the battle, uh, the secret uh, doubts and hidden fears that tempt us to live for our little kingdom and that tempt us to cling to our illusion of control. And somewhere in that one second drop between five feet and hitting the dirt, Joshua must have realized that only God was mighty and only his kingdom mattered. We have some strong enemies, don't we? We face the cravings of our own flesh, the enticements of this world, and the schemes of the devil, the evil one. These are true and strong enemies, my friends. You know, they're the bin Ladens of the soul that will stop at nothing and bringing you down. But in verse 5, we have a picture of a, a savior, a warrior, a champion who fights the bad guys of our souls. He is the warrior who fights for you daily, even in the midst of your fears, even in the midst of your doubts, even in your midst in the midst of our clinging to the illusion of control of our life. He fights for us. He prays for us. He is battling for us. We need a champion. We need somebody that, can, that is stronger uh, than us, that can do only what the champion can do. Charlotte Elliott grew up in a cultured, spiritual home in the 19th century and 19th century England. Her father was a pastor. Her father... Grandfather was a well-known pastor. Her brother was a pastor. When she hit her 30s, she had a, a debilitating illness that left her with chronic pain and a lifelong struggle with depression for the rest of her life. And one day she was particularly distressed and she was particularly irritable. And her doctor, who was a, um, a Christian, he was a friend of the family, was uh, there at the home and treating her. And, and he asked her about her faith. And he asked her if, if she really had ever experienced God's peace. And she was very offended by that question. And she lashed out at him, very embittered at God, questioning his plan for her life. She said, you know, even if I wanted to come to Christ, I don't even know if I could. I don't even know how. I don't even know where to begin. And he said, you know, uh, Charlotte, you, you come as you are. She thought about that that week, and she became very ashamed of the way she had treated their uh, physician friend, and so she cried out to God in the midst of her darkness and helplessness and her helpless estate, 
And she wrote a poem about her experience. And she submitted it to a local newspaper, uh, not even thinking that it would be published. And uh, she didn't know this, but uh, that poem, after it got published, began to circulate throughout England. And it circulated throughout the country, and a wealthy lady uh, came upon it and published it in a book of uh, poetry and prose and, and other pieces of literature. Several years later, the doctor had returned to the house, and Charlotte was in a very dark place, emotionally and spiritually, racked with uh, physical pain, racked with doubts and fear. And he handed her this anonymous poem. He said, Charlotte, maybe this will help you. God has used this for such an encouragement in my life in tens of thousands of people in our country. And, and he handed her this poem that she had written. And you know this poem is a hymn, just as I am. Or perhaps you don't remember the fourth stanza. I was reading it in my quiet time not too long ago, and it goes like this. Just as I am, thy love unknown hath broken every barrier down. Now to thine, yes, thine alone, O Lamb of God, I come. I come. You see, Charlotte Elliott had a champion. She had a warrior. And even though Charlotte Elliott knew not God's love and resisted God's love and spurned God's love, and even later in life she would stiff-arm God's love as we, as we do as well, her champion broke down every barrier and fought her every enemy that she would be his. We need a champion. You and I need a champion. We need rescue. In the name of our rescuer, is a wonderful counselor, mighty God, and next week, everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. Will you pray with me?